Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 16 years of law enforcement analysis experience, 12 of which with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She created the Open Source Intelligence Techniques website, which is resources for open source intelligence and social media investigation. She is an instructor for SANS, coming to us from British Columbia, Canada. Please welcome Ritu Gill. Ritu, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Well, of course, Sid, we're going to be talking about OSINT today and really looking forward to getting your perspective, the different techniques and what the do's and don'ts that you recommend to our listeners. But first, I wanted to go over how you got here. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So it starts way back. I did my bachelor's degree in criminology. At that time, while I was finishing my degree, one of my instructors invited an analyst to come talk to us about what crime analysts do. I was in my fourth year and I got really interested. And that's when my mind started kind of going towards the policing, not only policing, but the role of analysts in policing. So after I finished my bachelor's, I actually started a job with a department with the Muni police, the local police here in records. From there, I went and I learned a lot of the basics. So from the ground up, I learned the databases, the police databases, so those closed sources. I worked there until I ended up leaving about three years late, and I worked for the security unit for the 2010 Olympics. I assisted with the mobilization of police officers across Canada who were coming to work during the Olympic events in Vancouver. From there, after the Olympics were over, I eventually moved federally. I still wasn't an analyst, but I had the opportunity to move into a section. I worked actually for my then manager, Beltez Dillon, who's an incredible person. He was actually the first Mountie from the RCMP who was permitted to wear a turban because of his Sikh religion. So I worked with Beltej. He gave me a great opportunity to get into a researcher role. And then from there, I moved into a more analytical role and kind of, I moved to different sections throughout in the RCMP, working as a researcher, working as an analyst. And yeah, that brings me, I guess, today where I work as an open source intelligence analyst for a law enforcement agency in British Columbia. And I've been actively working as a OSINT analyst for a number of years now, supporting investigations with open source research and trying to help files move forward, um, provide recommendations and what investigators can do from the open source perspective. So that's kind of where I'm right now. All right. Very good. So when you were in records, was it still your goal to become an analyst? When I was in records, it wasn't really a goal. That was the start of my career. So it was like the foundations of, you know, working in a police environment, learning the Mm -hmm. basics of everything. So that interest came later on when I was, Mm -hmm. when I was in university and when I had met another analyst who came in to speak, that's where I got really curious and interested in, in what analysts for the police could do. Yeah. Hmm. And I've talked to several analysts now that began their career 
in something other than an analyst position with the police department. And it's, it is fascinating. It, it seems like no matter what you do, you're getting something out of that. Uh, records is a great example there because you're learning the data. You're getting it. You're understanding how the police department collects records and what the computer system is and and so my always recommendation to anybody that's struggling to get into the profession is just find your way in somehow and I think that will help you in in whatever form you're in with the police department. 100% I, I agree Jason I think working when you work in a place like records and I do have a lot of people ask they're like hey how did you how do you get into what you do I'm like I started from the ground up. I mean, I didn't just roll into the position I am in today. It was a series of, you know, steps I took, you know, finishing my degree, actively pursuing, looking for a job in policing. And I was okay with starting from the bottom. And records was like that clerical kind of work. But it also gave me a lot of the foundations I needed. And of course, I mentioned earlier, I talk about the learning the police databases. Well, those are closed sources. And if you look at what I do now, I'm an OSINT person, which is the opposite. It's the open sources. But as a employee, as as a employee doing work for them, it's important to know both. It's important to understand how closed sources work and what we can get out of them. And it's also, of course, use, using those in conjunction with open source at times. Hmm. And then with the security position with the Olympics, was that a full-time job or was that like part-time temporary? That was a full-time job. I saw that being advertised. So at that time I was in records. I've been there for a few years. I felt I had learned as much as I could there and I didn't, I wanted more opportunity. I know I wanted, I knew I wanted to keep growing and and advancing my career. So I started looking and and when I saw that job come up federally, of course I was leaving a full-time job this to another full-time job, totally different. And I just took a kind of a leap of faith, hoping for the best. I didn't know exactly what I was gonna land into, but it turned out it was probably one of the best decisions I made career-wise because it opened up so many more avenues after the Olympics were over. So were you in a situation where you had access to various agencies and could network that's what i'm envisioning yes at that time i mean there were so many different agencies and people and individuals that came together for at the security unit i mean you know i remember the military being there in the same venue and and that kind of stuff so definitely a good opportunity to network i was still i feel when i look back that was still really a younger time in my career so <laughs> I don't think networking was at the forefront of my mind at that time. Yeah. Uh, however, I was working with people who were, had many years ahead of me. And so I feel like there was a lot of, you know, things I took away from working with them. And it was still, I consider that still building those foundations of my career because I still wasn't in the role I wanted to be in at the time. It just, it was the various steps and, you know, learning about mobilize, mobilizing police officers, right, from all across Canada and what that entailed. So what did you want to be at this time? What was your goal? At that time, I was still in the mindset of, okay, I want more, you know, and I wanted to continue. And that was kind of always in my mind. When I did my bachelor's, I was like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to end up in policing. 
And then the whole analysis part came up and I was like, oh, being a crime analyst, that's interesting. Uh, All I knew at that time was I wanted more. I didn't know what the path looked like at the time. And I just, I looked for opportunities. You know, I went to my managers and I'm like, hey, is there room for movement? Would I be able to get a job as a researcher? So those things did come into my mind a little later on. When I did talk to managers, I put it out there that I was interested. I was like, I want to learn to be, you know, what a researcher does. Because that next step would be being an analyst, right? So I kind of had that foresight. So that's what that looked like for me. And then how long did you work the security job? That job was, so it was about two years, I believe. So when you look back at that, then what comes to mind? When I think of that time, I just think of, (laughs) I guess the word opportunity, really. I, I think that was a huge stepping stone for me to get into the next kind of segment of my career. I'm really glad I took the jump because, you know, a lot of people, other people could have applied and got the same job. I had no idea at that time where I would end up after the Olympics were over because we were only given, hey, you're going to have this job until the Olympics are done with. After that, there was a promise that you would get a job with the federal government, but it did not specify where. So, okay. Yeah. So I was kind of taking a big chance. You know, I could have ended up working for any other department, really. Uh, Of course, they wanted to know like, hey, where would you want to work? But that doesn't mean that you would get what you wanted always. I was kind of curious about gangs at that time. I remember that. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where Beltej Dillon came in. And I got a phone call because at the end of the Olympics or near the end, it was like, you know, he's like, I have an opportunity. It was an admin position in his unit. And I said, well, hey, yeah, I'm interested. That, that'd be interesting working in like a gang unit. However, I don't want to stay at the admin level. Is there something more that that will be available? And at that time, he said, right now, this is what we have, but you do have opportunity to grow. So he gave me enough information that made me say, I'll take the job. Yes, I'm interested with the hope and, you know, that I would get the opportunities to advance my career, right? Move from Mm -hmm. doing admin to more operational things like being a researcher or maybe being an analyst. So Mm -hmm. that was huge for my career. Okay. So just so I'm understanding the terms, obviously admin to tactical, certain types of work that you're doing there as an analyst, but then it sounds like is researcher the the base level. And then it sounds like you then work your way up to an analyst. Correct. Yeah. For, for at least for what I was doing at the time. Yeah. Like the, the, the path I took was of course the admin totally separate, but moving into a researcher role, Again, I was already familiar with police databases, but as uh, the role as a researcher were the steps towards being an analyst. It was like I was halfway there doing that work. Okay. So, so what is a, what does a researcher do and what does an analyst do? Well, I think again, for my situation, I would say researcher was more, Hey, we have 10 databases, for example, and we would just extract information. It would be more there would be some critical thinking, of course, and, and perhaps some analysis, but it was mostly pulling information that might be relevant to a file we were working on at that time. There's, of course, going to be special parameters on what we're looking for, but I would say the biggest step when you're going from, there's so many different types of analysts too, you have to keep that in mind, right? Especially with policing 
there's, you know, you could be a tactical analyst, you could be a crime analyst, they do different things. I would say the analyst part, the role can completely change. As a researcher, say I wasn't building up reports or writing reports, but as an analyst, that's what I was, that's what I was doing. I was writing profiles on say a business or a person. So that involved critical thinking, analysis, you know, evaluating all the different things I'm finding and making sense of it. All right. And then, so you start out as a researcher then, but on the admin side, and then where do you go from there? So in my situation, I gained a bunch of experience working as a researcher. So getting even more comfortable in, in supporting analysts, right? Because as Mm -hmm. a researcher, able, able to work with analysts, not doing their work, but supporting their files seeing what they do. For me later on, I ended up moving from a few sections, different sections. And then I worked for a section called, I would say this is where the open source kind of started. It was, it's called FSOC, Federal Serious Organized Crime Group. So I worked for them within, for the RCMP. And there was when I had the opportunity to start working full-time as an OSINT analyst. Now, did it feel like this was home? And what I mean by that is it seems like you were on a journey to this point, you, you kind of didn't, you, you kind of had an idea what you wanted to do, but wasn't definite and you, you kind of tried different aspects to the, to law enforcement, different aspects to the p- department there. Once you got to that open source area, did it feel like home? It did. Yeah, it definitely did. I would say that's where I felt I was like, I was waiting to kind of get to that spot, but also still really eager to learn everything I could about that role, about the ins and outs of doing that work, because I was working alongside several kind of senior analysts, which was really helpful. I would say sitting with them and taking in like their experience because somewhere on the way to retire. So they've been doing this job for a very long time. So I would say, yeah, like I definitely felt at home being there. Open source was, I mean, that wasn't what I thought back when I was working Olympics at all. I didn't know that that was a job at that time, you know, using publicly available information to support investigations, you know, using social media, using other sources of other open sources and providing that to investigators to support their files. So then I think obviously with smaller departments or where you're an analyst, you're the (laughs) jack of many trades kind of thing. So there wouldn't be a department dedicated to open source there. So, and so I'm trying to get an understanding of how this works. So an investigator, you know, needs research, that's more tactical based. So there's a group for that. If there's one is the need for more administrative information, they go there. And then now there's this open source unit. So if there's an open source need on, on the, based on the investigation, the, the detective would go there. Is that how it works? Yeah, I think like, I mean, the layout of how different police departments do it and, and or government agencies, it's all going to, vary from agency mm-hmm. to agency for sure you know like you said like there's certain police departments that kind of have it all right they have an open source unit they have a 
like crime analysts in one section. They have open source analysts in one section. That said, it's not always like that. Sometimes it's, hey, there's sometimes an analyst and you're doing everything. You're doing open source. You're doing the analytical stuff as well. It, it really depends. But yeah, that is like essentially like my, my kind of the way I worked with other people was I would work with other analysts. That was how it started out, supporting that file and you know, they would do their other stuff, you know, sometimes some, some analysts did like phone dump analysis, but I might support the open source side of that to the file. So providing research, providing other things that I see online that are maybe of interest to that file. Okay. So then when you're starting out in this OSINT group, you mentioned that you're working with senior analysts. So this is already an established product that they have set up there. So what's the what's the training like or how are they teaching you how to do the job so i did a lot of i guess job shadowing in a way i mean mm -hmm. just sitting next to them and learning hey what, how are you doing profiles or how are you doing your the report writing right because it that varied from individual to in, individual definitely there was like a template maybe we followed but sitting with somebody so it was almost like informal training that being said, there are going into, depending on what section it was, sometimes there is a more standardized process of like, hey, you're going to take these four courses. You're going to take these four courses and then you're going to sit with this individual and learn learn their job, right? Learn from them. For me, like I would say anytime someone's asked like, hey, how do you get into that? I'm like, there's so many different ways you can get into it. But <laughs> I would say definitely take the time and sit with the people that have been doing this for a while ask the questions, right? Because those were naturally come up when you're you're looking at how somebody's process or, you know, how, how they're finding information. Yeah, there's a lot of like tips, techniques, tricks, learn, just learning from others. And that's why as the years kind of went by, I just picked up on some of these things as I went along. So definitely on both informal and formal training, like a combination, but I would say being a self-starter is really, really important because I don't think a lot of this stuff like rolled into like onto my lap. Like it was stuff I had to like seek out, you know, I had to put the interest out there. At the end of the day, nobody's going to, nobody's going to just hand things to you. Like, I think you really have to be a go-getter when it comes to, I want to learn that job or I want to, I want to job shadow that person. Can I do that? Approaching managers, approaching the right people that will be able to help you along the way. Yeah, I really like the tenacity, and it, I, I've been told that in my career, too, that is because I was asking the right questions it led me down the path that I was getting to the police department. So in terms of starting out with this unit and it's open source, I think a lot of people think open source, they automatically think social media. What types of open sources are you using at this time? So everything, I would say. Of course, a lot of people think like, oh, social media, like that's fun. I'm like, yeah, like tons of fun. People put a lot of stuff out there that they shouldn't. Uh, however, open sources also encompass, encompass like business records, right? Because certain parts of the world, that information isn't private. It's public mm -hmm. information. So corporate records, news media, of course, that has a, because of privacy laws, as I mentioned, like some some countries have a lot of information on their citizens. And then there's some countries that really privatize the content and it's limited as to what you could find. But definitely like all sorts of social media, corporate records, like so those public records, right? Like even down to things like, 
arrest records, right? There's places in the States that that is public information, whereas in Canada, a lot of that is private information. And it varies from province to province as well, you know, in terms of like what's available. So knowing that is also helpful. I created a, a resource actually for Canadian investigators. It's a, it's a start me page and I, I'll hopefully have the link for you for the show notes, but it, it will have all the open source resources that I could think of for each province across Canada. So it's just like one of those resources I never saw online. And I just thought, why don't I create this thing just to help people out? Because, hey, if I'm doing an investigation and, you know, I'm from the West Coast, but if it's somewhere in, say, it's in Ontario and I don't know what their, you know, open sources look like, can, like, can we get company information on people? Well, maybe that this is a resource somebody could look at and and get a starting point at least. I think most people just assumed it's all online, but there's certainly opportunities where you can go to a particular government office and it's open source, but it's not something that may, may give out online. Yeah, I've, I typically, the, the open source I do, it is mm -hmm. 100% online, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sitting behind a computer for, for 10 hours a day <laughs> doing this. But yeah, that said, like, I mean, technically information at a library is open source, right? There's things that you can get at a library. Like, I mean, I haven't been to a library in a while, but <laughs> there's certain databases that you can log on yeah. to and do searches. So those are open sources as well. Also, would you consider open source if it's something that, you know, you might need to give your credentials for? For instance, you, you might be something where you have to let them know that you're in law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. So the way open source is defined, I mean, it's publicly available information. That mm -hmm. said, like it should be available to the public. If I'm giving my credentials, like there could be things like there's database subscriptions mm -hmm. to things like Pipple, right? That's a people search engine. You got to pay for it. And I have to enter some sort of login to get access. However, everything within that database is open source. So I could say that, hey, there are paid open sources out there, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so are they publicly available? You could say yes. However, I got to pay loads of money <laughs> to get mm -hmm. access. So those can still be considered open source. All right. You mentioned the start me. Was there any other products or anything else that you, when you look back of, you're proud that you accomplished? I would say, well, I definitely, I've done a lot of, I would say a lot of little products or, you know, depending, cause I have my government job and then I have my private consulting business as well. So it's different. So I'm not going to, I won't be able to mention specific cases, mm -hmm. but definitely like the most, I could say the most exciting files were the ones that had like, say a national security angle. Mm -hmm. uh, also another thing I'd mention when it comes to like just it may be interesting things. The cases that caught my eye the last couple of years just kind of kept things interesting were, say, the events at the U.S. Capitol, January 6th. And then another one in Canada, across Canada, was the Freedom Convoys, right? Kind of the anti-vaccine movement. So if you're wondering, like, hey, what was interesting? It wasn't just how much information was available in open sources during that time, mainly across social media platforms. But the platforms that were being used that were like lesser known for OSINT, 
that's what was really interesting and really relevant at that time. So for instance, there was an app being used during the Freedom Convoys called Zello. This was also used during the, the January 6th Capitol riot, but Zello is a two-way radio. So many of the people at the Freedom Convoy were communicating using this app because they were driving and they were looking to connect with like-minded individuals who also wanted to protest. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting just in general, like when I look at kind of like what, what took place contributions that you've met, you were asking about, I was, there was a project that's no longer running, but it was called OSINT, the OSINT Curious Project. So re we recently kind of concluded creating more content for this nonprofit. It essentially was a blog where a group of us OSINT people wanted to share OSINT techniques. Uh, the content is still up and it's going to stay up there. It's on a website called osintcurio.us. It's a great place for people to go and learn about open source, whether they're starting out, whether they want to advance some of their skills. So that's something I was on the advisory board uh, with Osint Curious for a few years. So that was a great thing that I thought we did as a group. Yeah, just because of time and whatnot. That's why we kind of had to conclude it just this actually month. We just thought, Hey, there's a lot of content out there, but just because of everyone's limited time, it's hard to keep up with something like that. Hi, I'm Joanne. I'm a crime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service. A public service announcement that I have is for, especially for junior analysts, but also senior analysts, just be true to yourself and recognize that the police culture that you're in shouldn't necessarily shape who you are, but you have something to bring towards your service as a benefit as well. Hi, my name is Kyle McFatridge, and I want to talk to you today about merging in construction zones. You've probably understood merging in construction zones to be getting over as fast as you can. This is not correct. Merging lanes are designed to be filled all the way to the point they end, and traffic then merges one vehicle at a time. Think about it logically. Would traffic flow better if people randomly stopped, put on their turn signal, and tried to get over? or if both lanes were completely full. The lane is supposed to be full until the point you come to a traffic cone and can no longer fill it. So to the people that block that lane, swerve at cars, honk, yell, or flip off people trying to use the merging lane correctly, you are not only rude, you are wrong. You do not get angry at people who pass you in the left lane a couple miles from that construction site, so why would you then be angry at them for passing you at the construction site? So next time you come to a merge in a construction zone, Remember to go all the way to the end and merge one car at a time. You will be doing it the right way and help make traffic flow much better for everyone, even for those angry people. Thank you. Now, you mentioned some of those events where you're gathering the open source information. And did you know ahead of time what apps folks were going to be using? Or was that something you found out like as the event was happening? That's something I found out as the event was happening or the events were happening. That was just through, I mean, looking at the online kind of angle of things, what was happening during that time for the Freedom Convoys, looking at things happening in Ottawa, you know, what people are saying online and then realizing, hey, they're using this app. What is this? Mm -hmm. And to my knowledge, I had no idea what Zello was. I was like, what's Zello? So I started doing my research. I was like, oh, it's like a two-way radio. I'm like, makes sense, right? If you're driving, you're not going to be texting. You can't, but you can hold down a button and leave an audio message. 
right? Okay. So yeah, that's kind of like through my research and, you know, just curiosity, wanting to know like, hey, what happened even after January 6th? Like, okay, and then reading a lot of articles and looking at again at that time, what are people saying online? What are some of the groups saying online? And then seeing this different apps that are being used at that time, I, I thought that stood out a bit. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating because to me, it wouldn't take very much to stand up a forum or stand up an app, for instance, for just a particular purpose, right? If it was well organized, you just stand that up and that's the way you communicate. In, in those forums, right? And it's, it, it, it could be very temporary. It's not something that needs to be on forever, but if they have a particular need that we need to communicate during this particular time, and we want to obviously not be detected by the authorities, it seems to me that an, an option would be to have one of these temporary situations. Yeah, no, for sure. It was interesting because a lot of the the channels, the Zello channels were posted publicly on like Facebook and it wasn't like what I'm trying to say. It wasn't <laughs> difficult to find them. Some of them were like, here's the QR code, scan here to get to the, which would take you exactly to the right Zello channel. Because I remember looking at the time Zello was, you needed to know the exact name of the channel. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to find it. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that, that was a little bit of a challenge, especially if you have like one word or one letter off, you're like, I can't find it, you know, or they ha have it, they have other characters in it or something. But yeah, that was, that was kind of interesting to me. Like I always say, like I did a presentation on lesser known platforms for OSINT, um, mm -hmm at an event called the Calgary Cybercrime Summit in September. And I, I highlighted some of those lesser known platforms for OSINT investigators. And one of them was Zello because I'm like, hey, well, here are a couple examples to show you in the last couple of years where it came up, where it was being used, how it was being used, and then showing the audience what it looked like, right? You know, just giving, giving some visuals always helps to show people like, hey, what I was seeing at that time, this is what I saw. This is what I saw on Facebook. This is what the app looked like. This is what maybe it sounded like, right? It was a 10 second clip of being like somebody being in a certain location or, or wanting to meet up with other people. Yeah, that's, man, that seems like so much. I'm just thinking in terms of trying to teach this, you talked about at the conference or through your instruction and, and even your consulting work. I mean, really, it, it seems like it's never ending. It, it seems like it's so vast. And probably that's the reason now that I'm thinking about it out loud. That's why you need a whole unit dedicated to this stuff, because there's that many avenues to travel through to make sure that as you're supporting investigations, that you, you make sure that you travel through all the different avenues. Yeah, definitely. I mean, having a team is definitely helpful. Because otherwise, I mean, it, it is it was like data overload, right? There's like mm -hmm. too much information and that can be overwhelming. So definitely having like an idea of where you're going to go before you go is always helpful. You know, mm -hmm. making sure you know what you're what are you looking for, right? Because that will point you in some directions and not in others, right? Yeah, having definitely with, with open source, there's so many different ways you can go that you really need to ask yourself, what's your intelligence? What's the intelligence question, right? What's the objective of the research? You always want to narrow your focus because otherwise you will go down rabbit holes and you will, you will get overwhelmed very quickly. Yeah. Cause I, I've, I've said, I think you could spend all day on Facebook and Twitter if you wanted to, 
and it's, <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, it certainly is a lot. So you, you mentioned the intelligence question. You mentioned the checklist that you have. Is there any advice that you normally give to folks asking about this stuff on how you narrow down your focus? I would say just generally starting with asking yourself, what is the purpose of this investigation, right? What's the purpose of my research? Is it, for example, you're trying to locate an individual, right? Because then I'm, I might not look at certain things that don't, you know, I'm not going to look at old information. I mean, that can give you some giveaways, but I might want to look for if they have any activity on social media that's more current within the last few months that might indicate where they are. You know, I might not I might not include all open sources if it's just hey, we're just trying to locate the individual. Is there anything I can see in their social media that points to a location, a specific region maybe? Are they even in the country? Are they traveling? Any of that? There's a lot of giveaways when it comes to a photo that somebody posts. And sometimes it looks innocent, but sometimes we can see things in the background that give away that they're in a certain country or they're traveling or hey, I think we know who they're traveling with. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a set of OSINT data that you think is most likely overlooked that analysts aren't tapping into but really should? I think it depends. It depends on somebody's uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course, I could talk about like, oh, these are my five top tools. A lot of people will know the general stuff, like they'll do search engines, but sometimes people limit themselves. Sometimes somebody will be like, oh, I only Googled it. I just use Google. Well, we use multiple search engines because search engines index different parts of the internet. So that means if I do a search on Bing, I might find information that isn't available on Google. Yes, Google's pretty good. It captures a lot. That said, does it capture the exact same stuff? No, not necessarily. And sometimes the order of which it appears is different. Mm -hmm. So for me, like sometimes it's something simple as that where I'm like, hey, make sure you do use at least two different search engines. And I do have examples of where I found information in Bing and that didn't catch in Google. And so that's one of those reasons. And I, I do think it, it comes with experience, uh, knowing where to look, knowing what your options are. I always ask people like, hey, what level of, OSINT kind of do you conduct if you know are you like intro and everybody's definition of intro advanced you know and intermediate might be different too so I I just keep asking questions until I understand it better yeah so I guess where, where do you define each one of those like how do you define intro intermediate advanced I think it depends on how much open source is part of your regular day-to-day -day job Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, and then of course, somebody's experience might be also like, I'm like, how much training do you have? You know, you know, are you already a trainer versus are you somebody who is being trained or taking courses? So I think that matters too. I think the amount of time you put in with this stuff, you learn things that others just won't see. It is definitely a full-time job. I've had people ask like, hey, can you do this on the side of your desk? I'm like, yeah, you could, but you might not do the greatest job because open source tools change so quickly. Techniques that we use change so quickly that if you're like, if you're not in the know, if you're not in the kind of the 
the quick turnaround of how some of these tools stop working or change, well, then you're going to miss things. Of course, it's a mindset as well. Like, I mean, being an analyst at the end of the day is, you know, making sure you're critically thinking about what you're looking at. Those things won't change, right? Those things stay as long as you continue doing that, you know, critically looking at what you're, what you found online. What does it mean? But yeah, I definitely think depending on how much time somebody spends doing this work, I think that defines it. How much just experience they have because I think with experience you end up learning so much over the years yeah hmm. well how much do you feel when you're dealing with open source that is social media I guess versus non-social media I'll just I'll just make it you know binary there what percentage of it is social media I would say a very high percentage when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to open source, just because the amount of information people are sharing nowadays is, is it's expansive. It's not just on one social media. There's new social media coming out. I feel like every so often where we're like, oh, okay, there's a new trending app now. And there's a new platform where people can share. I think that's a huge, it's a huge percentage of open source. Is it everything? It's definitely not everything. And of course, things like asking yourself so if you have a target group you know certain ages might be using certain apps right mm -hmm. tiktok might be for a certain generation versus you know back in the day there was like myspace you know who used <laughs> myspace is that still available who would use something like Flickr? do people still use that today maybe it's for a certain group of people that you know like to take photos yeah, yeah. so different apps for different people is second life still around that's showing my age i'm probably asking that question uh I don't I actually second life. Is that what you just said? Yes. I don't think I even know about that, to be honest. <laughs> so, so I'm showing my age, age there. Yeah, that, you yeah, know, that. I don't know that one, to be honest. I'm like, I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So definitely. I, yeah. There's just so much social media, just people love sharing and oversharing. I do a privacy talk where I always show people how they compromise themselves online you know, by sharing mm -hmm. too much. So I like to give examples of like people doing that. Cause I'm like, Hey, this is how, this is what people are doing. This is why you shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of showing them that part of it, but yeah, social media can be a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah. I'm, I'm always surprised with people sharing information, especially when they're doing criminal activity. Right now, if it's a situation where they have a friend or a family member posting about them and you law enforcement finds it out that way, you know, that that stuff certainly happens. But yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm often surprised with just as you mentioned with the events, like they're doing illegal activity and at the same time posting it for all to see. And it just seems to me that I would have thought that people would have smartened up by now. Yeah, I, you know what? I would think that too, but it is definitely not true because, uh, you know, people have the need to share, you know, just the way society's become, I think. Putting their life out there. Yeah, you would think like a lot of times it might not be them. I mean, there are definitely individuals who will literally be committing a criminal act, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. doing something against the law and then posting it online. I don't know if it's just to get attention, not thinking they'll get caught. But I think a lot of times it's like you don't see, say, exactly a criminal act, but you'll see like associations to people that mm -hmm. you're like, hey, OK, you know, you can find a lot on social media about a person, you know, their background, their lifestyle. What do they do? What 
what motivates them? What influences them? You know, are they somebody that needs to be on social media every five seconds? And, you know, or do they need to post when they're working out? I mean, it gives you a lot of lifestyle information about a person, you know, like they're at the gym every day. They have to take a photo of themselves every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, but they're eating uh, three times a day and all the snacks too. <laughs> but yeah, like it's definitely kind of interesting how people are. I mean, it varies. Some people are privacy conscious and then there's people that just aren't. Often I find you'll have our main subject of interest who is privacy conscious, but then that person might have a girlfriend who has an open profile and is sharing everything. Or we have the main subject and that person's privacy conscious, but his mother or parents or siblings are open. So mm-hmm. through these secondary targets, we can often find a lot about the main target. I remember at, when I was at Cincinnati Police Department in Ohio, you were talking about 2009 time frame. You know, social media, they were creating fake accounts, right? Yeah. To then yeah. friend different targets to try to gather information from there. And there was a bunch of rules there of what they could and could not, could not do. Right. Is, is that part of what you're doing too? Yeah. So as well, one thing is, is there's a difference between passive and active OSINT. So when I say that is like passive OSINT gather collection is like, we're not engaging with people. We're not messaging them, friending them. Active goes into, I mean, it could be things that, can be looked at as as a undercover operation so that's different because if we're engaging people that that is no longer passive however we do create research accounts for what we do so regardless i mean i do passive osint and i have various fake accounts on social media because i don't want my name associated to the investigation as in i don't want ritu gill to be investigating all the targets you know, because if somebody Googled my name, they'd be like, oh, they already know I'm an online investigator. They already know I'm an OSINT person. All right. So I we have that call in segment of don't be that Alice. So I do want to get into a little bit of that. So in terms of your advice on when it comes to OSINT, what what you advise things that analysts should not be doing? OK, so. Uh, this one's big for open source, and a lot of OSINT analysts would understand this. Don't be the analyst who thinks a social media post will be there if they go back tomorrow. So what that means is if something's relevant and they see it, save it right away. Because so often I'll have analysts be like, oh, I didn't save it in time, and that person deleted it. <laughs> so yeah, we don't be that analyst that does sees something and doesn't save it during that time and hopes tomorrow it'll be there because often it won't be there (laughs) yeah now is that just the the technique to do a screenshot make sure you get the website make sure you get the time is that is that usually the course of action yeah it depends it depends again like who you work for do you go do you have to go testify in court making sure things are at a court standard is really important. And that would include things like within your capture, there's different ways to capture online material, but making sure you have the date and time noted. Do you have the URL captured? Do you have everything in that cap document or sorry, that post, including comments expanded? You know, all, all that matters. If it's something that may not be going to court, the threshold will be definitely different. That said, yeah, it'll vary from case to case. Hmm. 
Another one that we talked about a little bit yesterday in the prep call is stuff that I, I, I seem to hear. I'm not sure how much analysts are doing it, but it seems like when they're talking about open source, it seems like that's their entire focus. Like they're only doing open source information and they're not combining what they're learning in open source with maybe human intelligence or maybe what they could get in closed systems and their databases back at the department, whatever they have access to. It seems like once they're in that mode of open source, they get a little bit of tunnel vision and that's where they'll stay and not bounce to the different sources that they have access to. Correct. You definitely want to have an open mind when it comes to doing the research, because at the end of the day, I think with open source, it is a little bit sexy. So I think people tend to focus on just the open source when there could be so much more. So you don't want to get that tunnel vision. You want to have the open mind where you can not only do open source, but keep your mind open to other sources of information, especially as an analyst, if you have other databases. You know, you don't want to miss information that's literally sitting in front of you that could be utilized to gain more information or insight into the, the subject of interest. Okay, so let's talk about your website now. As I mentioned in your intro, you have open source intelligent techniques and just did what made you create a website for this? That's that's something I started when I decided I was like, hey, I want to create, I want to do something on the side in addition to my regular job. but Still, I love open source, so I decided, I'm like, well, that's how I started out. I created a website, osinttechniques.com. I called my business Osint Techniques, and just registering the website was step one, and then starting to add some open source resources on there. That's what I use it for. It's mostly just to put, like, sometimes I'll do a talk, and I'll add a link on my website of all the different resources I shared in that talk, that type of thing. So I use it as that. It's also a way people can get a hold of me. So if you if somebody looks, they're like, oh, okay, they can email me at my Proton Mail and reach out to me. You know, they can connect with me on Twitter, that type of thing. I do have some I have different sections. I change it up. It's not something I update on the regular. I post mostly on Twitter, but my website is a definitely a source of information. I have some stuff that I've created over the years on my website. And an example of that is this is, I guess, a small contribution. I'm going to call it, I created a Google map called the Metro Vancouver Shootings map. So it's just a link of, so in, in Metro Vancouver, we have an issue with gangs. And there's been a lot of shootings in the last few years. So in 2021, I started tracking all these shootings that were related to the gang conflict. And I put it on a map. And that's one of the things that you'll see on my website, just because it's a really neat visual to see what how it's progressed, how many shootings are related to the gang conflict. All this information was gathered from open sources, so news media articles primarily, where we know it's gang, it's linked to the gang, and how I sorted it was I put it on a map, and in red you'll see those are public places, like public shootings. So again, a risk to public safety, which is a huge concern. And then the ones in black are residential related shootings. So somebody was shot in a driveway or in their house, just to just to show the difference between how many we have 
public versus residential. That's anyways, that's something that you'll find on my website. And uh, I do have, it's in a tiny URL. It's tinyurl.com forward slash LMD GC. Okay, good. Yeah, I did see that. I didn't know, I didn't get the full story on that, but that I, I like that aspect. That's a good example of what you can learn just through uh, OSINT. And yeah, so you mentioned newspaper. And it's funny when I think back of the history of open source intelligence, the newspaper was used to be a pretty big resource. And now certainly what's online is is available. But I, I do know that a lot of newspapers and trying to gather revenue streams will, you know, make you pay for certain content there is do you do you subscribe to newspapers or any kind of things i would say generally i mean i don't subscribe to anything specifically mm -hmm. but depends what i'm looking at like i like you know there's certain journalists that they specialize in 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 the gang conflict in metro vancouver so i might follow that person who will give me a lot of insights on what's happening mm -hmm. so that kind of thing um i i We'll follow individuals over paper sometimes, but yeah, that, that's a huge source of information. Even some of the, the, the briefings, right, that come out from the police directly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, their media releases, those are important. I have, I'm signed up for some of those, which is mm -hmm. always interesting because it keeps me in the know of what's happening. Things like our integrated homicide unit, well, they put out media releases every time, you know, somebody's found dead. And if it's gang related, I want to, I want to flag that. Right. So I keep, I keep close tabs on that, but a lot of it through Twitter, to be honest. Right. And it seems to me, it just seems like with everything that we deal with as analysts, it's free to a point, but then of course people are going with, with OSINT being as popular was, you know, there's more and more vendors that are, have a product for law enforcement that will help them with their OSINT investigations. What's your thought on those? I mean, certainly from your from your side of things, it sounds like you've mostly gone the the free route. But as since OSINT has become more popular, you're certainly going to have more and more paid tools that are going to be available to analysts. Yep. I mean, definitely like I try to show people the free resources because I know there's different people doing this work. So, and not everybody, not every organization agency has the money or will pay for some of the tools out there. That said, I always say to people, there's certain software that as an OSIN analyst might not be relevant to what they do. Cause you have to ask like, if it's like something to do with geolocation or social media monitoring, and you're like, oh, well, we don't even do that. Then why would you spend all that money getting that software? Like I've seen that where they're like, oh, we'll get this software. And I'm like, keep in mind, you, do you understand what it's like pulling information from? It's only from open sources. So it's stuff you could find yourself. But, you know, it will take you longer. But if you're not even doing that type of work, then what's the point of getting that software? Like, think about why you would need it. There's some software that I would, you know, vouch for. I'd say like, hey, that's a really good software for, say, social network analysis. But I would say for that one, I mean, it's not free. It's You have to pay for it. But Shadow Dragon is a great tool, I'm going to say, for OSINT. Or sorry, for a social network analysis. And it can graph out a bunch of different connections. It uses Meltigo, those things. But yeah, definitely, like, I generally try to show people free methods. But if people specifically ask, like, 
hey, what software do you pay for? Well, then I say like, well, what is it for? Are you looking for capturing software? You know, is it something like Hunchly? Hunchly is a software specifically for online investigations. It was created by an individual named Justin Seitz, who's a Canadian. And <laughs> this, this tool, I have to give that plug. But yeah, Justin is a, is a great guy. And um, yeah, it's not an expensive software, but it's something a lot of law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and in Canada use. But yeah, and, and I would tell people, you know, it's not, it's, it doesn't cost a lot, so it's worth it for what it does. So for those that are looking to get into either a unit or a position that is the full-time OSINT analyst, what advice do you have for them? So number one, I would say get involved. I mentioned this earlier, but you have to be a self-starter. So you have to start with researching about OSINT. I would say get, get behind the keyboard and start learning how other people are using open source intelligence. There's a lot of information out there just on the, on the internet. Get on twi Twitter and search for the keywords OSINT and see the amount of posts that you'll see out there. There's an individual on Twitter named Sector035 who every Monday releases a blog post called Week, a Week in OSINT. So what he has here is some amazing tips and resources mentioned every week. So new information, things that you might not know of, you can go back into the archive and, and dig up the, you know, the first one that came out. I'm not sure what number we're on, but he's, uh, <laughs> he's published a bunch. I think that that is a great resource to learn more about OSINT. Okay, good. And then do you have any speaking engagements coming up or training coming up on OSINT? I have, I do, I do a lot of public talks. I am doing one for, I believe it's MacDev YVR in Vancouver in person. It's going to be about online privacy and that's going to be in May. Otherwise, there is a new OSINT course offered by SANS, which is, the course is called SEC 497. And it's brand new, and there's a new new author named Matt Edmondson, who's a great guy and great author who teaches the course. I'd mention that right now because that, that course has a lot to offer. There's a lot of information, a lot of good takeaways from it. All right, good. And to the listeners, we've obviously talked about various topics here dealing with OSINT today and Ritu has mentioned different websites. We'll make sure that we get all those links to those websites in the show notes, including Ritu's. So then catch her there. And she's a great follow as well. And so I highly recommend that you reach out and follow her on the various sites. All right, Ritu, then... Before we get to personal interest, one question I like to ask my guests is return on investment and stuff that may be not important today, but will be five years ago. So folks, analysts can study it today and it'll have a pretty good return on investment, say five years from now. I'd say, I would say definitely things like staying up to date with new technology and trends, things like networking, right? Definitely those are things that, you know, these are going to continue to be important staying engaged with people that's so important for the field even things like you know getting getting some courses on critical thinking and analysis that will only help you be a better analyst as the time goes on all right good and let's move on to personal interest then and you have taken the time to hone your skills in lock picking yes so <laughs> i 
definitely want to do some non-OSINT work. So one of the things I got into was thinking that was introduced at a security conference called B-Sides. So B-Sides Seattle and B-Sides San Fran were the ones I went to last year. Lockpicking is a lot of fun, just a little hobby, but they had little lockpicking villages, which I attended. It keeps people off screens for a while and you just work with your hands. And it is fun when you actually open a lock and you're like, oh, okay, like learning the different ways. Learning, some people are so good at it, but that was a lot of fun. So that's some... One little hobby that I have just to stay off the screens because I spend so much time on computers. Yeah. And you dealt with combination locks too, right? Yep. Combination locks as well. Yeah. Like they had a fun little lock picking village at Beside San Fran last June. You know, if you open the combo lock, you get a little treat inside. But again, like it was just, you know, trial and error and then learning mm -hmm. from other people. Like I'm like, how are you doing this? Like, how is. How how do we do this? It's not like I have any background in lock picking, yeah. just doing it for fun. But that was always like those little wins are pretty exciting. So I'm like, wow, I just opened a combo lock, and I'm like, I have zero like you know experience from the. But yeah, they make it fun. You know, you get a little treat if you actually are able to break into it. Yeah. So yeah, my wife had a combination lock that she forgot the combination to. And she, just to wrap this up nicely, she Googled it. You found a couple of YouTube videos, found a couple other open source websites, gives little tips and tricks on how, what to listen for and what to feel for in terms of the combination lock. And she was able to figure out how to, what the code was and how to open it. So I was, I was pretty impressed by that. It's amazing how much information is online on the videos, you know, starting for beginners. It's like telling you what to do, what to look for. And then just, you know, if you have spare locks around the house, start with those, right? Start with the basics and move from there. I mean, you can always go to some of these B-sides security conferences are all around the world. So attend a local one. And usually they have a lock picking village, but the ones I have at least have. And that's that's where you, you go, you take it for a spin. Yeah, sounds fun. All right, Ritu. Our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? I don't know if I have one for this. <laughs> words to the world. I don't really, I don't even know what to say for that one. So I'm not really sure I'm going to go with that, if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I leave every guest with, you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Okay. But, uh, but I do appreciate you being on the show, Ritu. Thank okay. you so much, and you be safe. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.